Adventures Less Travel podcast. I'm your host, John Schwenk, and I'm checking in from London, England, across the pond. Today, I have two exceptional guests with me, Caroline Subaru and David Ferguson. They have just broken the Guinness World Record for fastest circumnavigation around the world by a married couple on two bikes. It's quite a mouthful, super specific, and not only did they accomplish this momentous feat, but they did it during a global pandemic. So I have a lot of questions, and I'm, I'm super excited to get into this conversation with you guys. So what was the what were the exact dates? We left England on the 28th of September and came back on Easter Saturday, which I think is about the 14th of April. So, yeah, it's around about seven months, 202 days, I think. That's correct. 202 days. And eight, what was the exact, not mileage, but... It's 29,000 kilometers is the, you know, the minimum amount you have to do. And so we did 29,500-something. Yeah, uh, a bit over. Last time, yeah, so we just a bit of a margin of for error. And then I think you're supposed to cycle around, uh, so the total must be 45,000 kilometers or something like this by flight. But because of the pandemic, we actually did way more because we had to fly like all crazy directions. I think it was 79,000, maybe more than 90,000. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. And for my friends in the US who don't know anything about kilometers, I did the math and I think that's about like 18,000 miles. 18,000 miles, yeah. Like that, right? yeah. So that's amazing. The first thing, that most people are kind of dying to know with these kinds of trips is like, I'm assuming you didn't just roll out of bed one morning and be like, you know what, let's take our bikes around the world. Like what's, what was kind of the, the impetus for it? I, I, I noticed you guys have done a, a little bit of bike touring and, and cycling and, and just general endurance sports in the past. So what, what was kind of like the spark? So I always cycled growing up. I just loved being on the bike, but I'd never done anything big until I was about 18. And it did uh, lands on the John Groats, so a quite traditional route in England. And then every year from that, I went away with my best friend and we just built up longer and longer distances for a couple of weeks in the summer. One of the most enjoyable ones was flying to Mont Blanc and then cycling through Italy because when we cycled, we cycled around the world, Italy is still one of the highlights for, I think, for anyone. So that was, that was a beautiful event, but probably the one that really pushed us was Los Angeles to New York, so six weeks. And we, we were super green behind the ears when we landed. We literally got the bikes at LAX and just asked for directions east, going through LA. And that's kind of how it started. And bit by bit, as you build and as you grow across it, you learn how to cope, you learn how to interact. And I've always loved the US and people are seeing how things change. And at the end of it, you finish. And, and you think, this, this can't be it. There has to be something else we can do. And the world seems like quite a logical next step. So that was a kind of grand hurrah, the, the biggest thing. And it's just a wonderful way to live. It's relatively cheap to fly. Once you're there, you camp, so it's, it's not a big expense, particularly as a student. And we just have the best time. And I think it's a natural progression. You keep going, and at some point, you start talking about what could we do cycling around the world. Mark Beaumont is an ultra cyclist. I think he's got the record for the fastest of all time with, with a, a crew of them. And... He made a video in 2008 about his first journey when he cycled around. And you look at it, and for people like us who'd be like cycling, we said, we just have to go. At some point, we have to go. Best friend, he's gone to Canada, he's pursuing a career. And then I met Caroline, who'd never ridden a bike. 
in any kind of serious context before we met. And at some point I said, you know what, this is something I'm thinking of. It sounds a bit nuts, but I'd love to try it. And probably the last three or four years, the idea's percolated to the point where you were like, we have to go. Yeah, exactly. I think we met in 2016. I started to ride a bike to work at that time. Due to an injury, I used to run to work. And uh, he bought me a bike. I was really upset at first. I was like, why would you buy me a bike? It's going to be a waste of money. I'm never going to be confident enough to ride it. And then I kind of realized to myself, you know, if it's so nice to have something in common. So uh, he went away to work in South Africa and I gave myself the objective, when he comes back, I will be comfortable on a bike and I'll be able to ride all by myself. So I joined a cycling club. Then when he came back, we went to Mobutu and we started to like do this Sunday to Mobutu, which is three times the same. So he was confident that I was fine on a bike. And then I got really much into long distance um, because I have the tendency in my character to do things. Like if I do one thing, I do it like full on. It's never halfway. Uh, and I, I discovered bikepacking through ultra racing, basically. And yeah, we just always wanted to do something like this. I really love the idea as well. And yeah, it was just, we needed to do it. It's almost, we needed to go because we know that we're reaching an age as well where we need to settle and we were pressed by time. So we're like, we need to go. And then the pandemic arrived. <laughs> like, that's why so this was, this was like in the works way before COVID. It wasn't like, oh, because some people were like, um, COVID hit, they lost their job, and I'm going to go on a bike trip. This has like been percolating for yeah. quite a while. COVID, if anything, uh, delayed the trip because sure, we were supposed yeah. to leave in, in April originally and follow the very you know, normal route through Asia and, and do that in the summertime. And instead, we ended up leaving in you know, October and had to be very creative with uh, the route we, we had to take. And so generally speaking, you know, you guys aren't the, uh, the hippy-dippy, free-spirited, come-as-you-go kind of people. So you have full-time jobs. You both are very successful in your jobs. So what would, do you face a lot of like, backlash with that when you first brought up the idea or was it uh, generally well-received? I'm pretty fortunate with the, the guy who looks after my training as a surgeon is absolutely fantastic. He's so forward thinking. And I spoke to him in 2017 and I said, look, if I can get on to the program that you look after where you train these guys in London, could I have a year was what I was asking for. A year, I want to cycle around the world. I'll visit orthopedic centers on site, but it's kind of, it's not work. It's just for me. And he immediately said, absolutely. No problem. If you want to do that, it, 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 if you can get onto the program, because it's obviously competitive, if you can get on it, you have a year. And I kept reminding him every six months, and then I applied and I got the job. And then he stuck to his word. He said, absolutely, I said I would, you can have it. And we were due to leave April 2020. But then obviously the pandemic <laughs> is literally... Right. So we kind of had to rewrite everything and leave... Um, when did it was September, September 2021. Yeah. yeah. We tried again at April 2021, didn't happen. And yeah. So, yeah. Wow. And for me, uh, I mean, I've been with the, the bank I'm working with now for basically yeah, 2016 now. So, I mean, I've been there long enough. Uh, it did impact, obviously, my career because I'm in a position now where I could have stepped up, you know, within my team and sure. be promoted to something else. So it was a, a decision that I had to make, which was obviously a bit difficult. Um, but no, I think they, they took it, they took it fine because I've been working for a long time and, and you know, those kind of banks nowadays and, and big companies in general, when they have talented people that I've been working with for a while, they, they don't want to see them go, they invested a lot in you. So 
I didn't really give them much choice anyway. I told them it's very simple. I said, let me go. I have to go because I have to do this. And I think that they understood. And then when I was away, both David and I, actually, we stayed in touch with our job, you know, just because I wanted to make sure that they, they knew I'm going to come back. I'm sure. going to have an epiphany and then never come back ever. <laughs> so so now in the end, they were they were supportive and that was fine. I'm a bit of an oddball anyway uh, in the companies. I used to be like telling them in the summer, oh yeah, I'm going away for like racing across Europe in two weeks. I'll be back. They're like, okay. So that, no, they were fine. It was it was okay. It was it was a hard choice to make, and I'm still you know feeling it now that I'm back. I feel like oh gosh, I'm late now. I need to catch up on everything. But yeah. it was definitely worth it. Awesome. Well, that's great. So the the next natural question is the root, right? So um, you have this idea in your head. You start planning it. You know, just the two of you. You start thinking of of uh, how you can work it. No pun intended. Work it out with work. And so, what made you decide? Because you started in Alaska, right? It, on the border. Because you look at a map when we left, everything was closed. Literally, everything was closed. Uh, oh. Our Canada, uh, a week before we flew. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, that's interesting. So, that wasn't even like your original route then. We all, so from the beginning, we had our original route was just a classic round the world route. Like, we were very excited, you know, to go through all the stands and everything. And then for, for anyone who doesn't know, what is like the classic? The classic one is, for instance, you will leave from like Mark Bowman will leave from Paris. Uh, so you have so you have the fastest one, which is you basically leave from Paris, go all the way across Russia and down to China. So okay. it's like really flat, really fast sure. tailwind. You go to Australia, do Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand. You have to go to New Zealand because it needs to be your antipodal point, and it needs to be on the other side, which is the other side is basically Spain. So people always go to New Zealand, and that's an important point for us. Uh, and then you go back via the US, up across the US, back into Europe, you do kind of like Portugal and up all the way back to Paris, and you're done. Okay. That's a standard route. Okay. Very important as well, you have to start and finish at the same point. So even if it looks like we started in, in Canada, we actually rode a little bit in London. <laughs> that comes oh, nice. our, yeah, to okay. make it count. So yeah. that's a standard route. You can make it a little bit more exciting. You don't go in the States through Russia. You can go a little bit via the stands. So you see a bit more of Europe. It's just slower. And then you go around. So that's how people do it. And it's actually really good because you get to tell in most of right. the way when you do that. And what, what is like the distance for that class of it's the same. It has to be 29,000 20, kilometers. 20, 20, 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. And so, yes, for us, everything was closed. Everything. <laughs> so we kind of left, and this is where, as well, when we left, we didn't really tell people we're going to cycle around the world because we were really afraid of failure. And we're like, you know what, let's just keep right. it really low key. Right. Let's just say we're going to cycle as far as we can in one direction. Sure. So, because that's one of the rules as well, only one direction. And we were really hoping to start in Alaska to give us as much as possible distance, but the US at the time was still not open for Europeans, so we wanted to start at the very border. Um, but then it was already really, really cold, <laughs> so we ended up starting in Whitehorse, which was oh, wow. a little bit more manageable for, for yeah. winter. Yeah. The thing we see here today, right, you've, you've flown over here, things are very much getting back to complete normality. Right. September last year, Literally, the world was closed. We couldn't even fly in Europe. So we're sitting there looking at a map, but we booked the time off work, and it's getting closer and getting closer. Right. And I'm looking at the predictors on, on various government websites, and I'm like, it might be okay, it might be fine. No. We couldn't have flown from the UK to the US. But if you fly into Canada, spend two weeks in Canada, which is exactly how like you're quarantined, yeah. basically. Yeah. Two weeks in Canada, coming down to Vancouver, then you're okay to fly into the US. And it's literally, you look at a map of the world, 
When we were in the US, South America was closed. It opens uh, a month before we we're finishing, so kind of we're around uh, California. Southern America opens. Then, uh, and I think Argentina then wasn't open, it was just Bolivia. Just Bolivia. Then Omicron hits, and you're right. going to South Africa after, <laughs> after you go. So then, you, and literally bit by bit by bit, all the way, you get to two days away from Mombasa, and then Australia opens. And, and you haven't been planning it, you haven't been thinking about it. So you go back to Europe for two weeks, then you can get to Australia. So it's literally. It's like you're chasing open doors. Yeah. It was a constant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You were already a lot of That's pressure great. on those kind of, of on those kind of trips. You you know you feel a lot of pressure every day to find a place to sleep. You know, to there's not really any rest. And then on top of that, we have this building yeah. of pressure of what what can we do? Are we going to be able to do it? It was tough, but at the same time, it, it made it all very exciting, and it allowed us to have a very like very different route. We went to a country that most people, when they do this trip, they don't go to, so yeah. that was really fun. But yeah, as you said, like Canada to the US, <laughs> we couldn't even cycle across from Vancouver to Seattle. We had to fly. Oh my god, that's crazy! Because it was crazy. forbidden to cycle for some reason. That's, that's so because nice. of COVID. Yeah, just, as if it makes yeah, just cramp inside of a plane. That's like yeah. so <laughs> being inside. Yeah. But in the end, the route. What did we do? So we did Canada, the US, and then from the US, Florida, we flew to Bolivia. Right. We did Bolivia up across to Argentina. Actually, had to take a bus to another border point because that one was closed yeah. for COVID. Uh, and then we went along uh, in Argentina, all the way to Buenos Aires. Then we did uh, South Africa, Namibia, uh, Botswana, Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya. Back to Portugal, Portugal, Spain, France, the UK. Then flew from there to Australia, all the way across Australia. New Zealand was still closed, so we had to think out of the box <laughs> for the um, antipodal point, and we realized Hawaii is actually antipodal to Botswana, like yeah, ends yeah, yeah. in Botswana. Sure. So we went to Hawaii, went across Honolulu, uh, and from there flew back for the last leg in Europe, which was London to Venice. Oh, wow. Okay. And then we came back to London and we finished in London. So it's, it looks a little bit weird because we, you, you need to always make sure the parallels don't, don't cross because you right. can't go back on yourself. So basically when we finished the first leg in Europe, we finished in Angers, and then we made sure that when we started in London, like in the UK, I mean, we started on the coast and we made sure that it was just past Angers on, a, on the parallel, so we didn't come back on ourselves, so it was a little bit... But in the end, if you look at the whole map, it works. <laughs> oh my god, that's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah, so, yes. <laughs> so, so, kind of in, in parallel here, the, the COVID part, like where was that the most difficult? Like, I guess, what was the, most, the easiest and what was the most difficult in terms of, like, setbacks for you? Even, so, focus on Australia, right? Logistically, Australia's not open. It's never going to open. Nothing's happening. <laughs> so you're kind of planning this thing. You think, where are we going to get the miles from? We need to get 29,000 kilometers. So you're coming up inventing routes in Europe. Australia opens. So you, you rearrange your plans to get to Australia. Fly from, fly from London to Sydney. As we get there, we realised Australia obviously made up of different states. Western Australia wasn't open. So our plan was, we get a campervan in Adelaide, drive backwards to the border with Western Australia, turn around and drive all the way eastwards. As we get to Sydney, Western Australia opens literally when we're through the departures. So we're frantically calling the car hire people, trying to change things and ask if we can get a, a campervan available in Perth on the west coast. So you're literally in the middle of you checking into flights, you're moving, you're due to fly to one place, and you have to sit down on Skyscanner and rebook flights <laughs> to get you from Adelaide back over to Perth. Oh, the direction you've come from. Like so, we, lost, we lost a week just of travel. Uh, just kind of yeah. traveling. And 
you dive on, you look back, we'll look back at this in years to come, and you think, oh, that was really, that's what happened. But just getting to the physical point where you can cycle, not, not even the actual cycling, but just yeah. the logistics, right. Right, was honestly probably harder than any of the riding or anything we did. Yeah, and then there was, was the, the border thing, which was really annoying. Like, as we said, you know, Bolivia, was, we cycle all the way to this border point, and they tell us, oh, you know, this one right now is COVID, it's closed for tourists, but you can go to this other one, which is on the, like, the other side of a mountain range that you can't even cycle on. <laughs> So it's just like, we have to, we would have lost, we would have to come back onto ourselves cycling and we would have lost probably like a week again. Yeah. So we had to take a, a bus just to be faster to go to the other border point. And same thing in Africa, you know, trying to find a place where you can do a PCR test in the middle of the jungle in Botswana, <laughs> it's just not easy. Right, <laughs> you right. just have to navigate all of this. Yeah, just, yeah that, that was a lot of like extra faffing and looking around. Same thing in, in Bolivia, we had, when we had the situation with the border, then we had to on a Saturday evening, find a place to do a PCR test, like emergency, in order to go into Argentina where you don't speak Spanish. So it's all it's all a bit of a <laughs> situation. Of, yeah. yeah. It's it, a massive added layer of complexity. But you know what? It, it, it's good and you learn how to survive and, and it helps you uh, develop your experience of people and culture. Yeah. And grow your sense of humor as well. <laughs> yeah. um, so then on the, on the converse of that, which was like, a breeze like didn't give you problems at all. Um, the way that things are set up in the US, we're due to fly to La Paz that day. You that morning, you go online, book a test for COVID. You literally just pull off the road, go in five minutes. They do it. You're back on. They email you within two hours the result. You go to the airport and you fly. Right. So <laughs> you know it's it's a change. If you pay for things and, and things set up a certain <laughs> yeah. way, it, it can work so easily. And then yeah. So it's just swings and roundabouts in different countries and different cultures. Okay. So um, I can only fathom the, the logist that that you have so many different like puzzle pieces that you have to put together. You know, what about camp camping or, or like where'd you stay? Like where'd you go at night? Was it mostly like hotels or did you do ghost camping? Or? That's that's a funny one. So we did a bit of camping, but then there's something we had completely disregarded because. You know, I, I can do camping when I do a one-week race. It's very intense, but uh, you survive. You sleep more or less anywhere because you're tired. And you can do camping when you do a bikepacking trip where you cycle, let's say, maximum 100 miles a day. Right. You know, you arrive at a decent time in the evening, and then you can pitch a tent. When you do something like 250 kilometers, and you arrive somewhere, and it's dark, and you still haven't found a place to eat, camping is just a no-go. And so we... we, we rapidly grew a little bit lazy <laughs> when we're in the US we're like you want to camp I'm like let's just find a motel <laughs> so we actually in the US ended up doing a lot of motels um, in the, in Bolivia in Argentina and so on it was kind of a case of arriving somewhere and asking you know is there a place where we can sleep tonight and then people yeah. would just set up a bed for us and we just give a bit of money and sure. it was just fine uh, Africa was more or less the same thing as so Africa was a bit concerned as well because some bits in Africa are fine to camp like Namibia there's not one around it's really easy uh, but Zambia or, or, or Tanzania it's they're so busy with people that as soon as you stop even to pee you literally have like half a group of like maybe 20 children come around <laughs> to look at you and you're like and just want a bit of privacy yeah, yeah. to go away um, and so you can't really camp there it's really really difficult because everyone's looking at you so but uh, you find places something you arrive in a village and you right. say, do you have some kind of place where I can sleep tonight and anywhere for fine uh, and in Europe there was no way we could camp it was so so cold and then for Australia, which actually, when I was looking at record, a lot of people do it this way. We had David's dad coming in a camper van 
Um, oh, and took all your stuff. So it, uh, it was great actually because, you know, it would meet us every 50 kilometers and then we could eat, we could hide from, you know, the really big insects you have that devour you in the desert. <laughs> and then it also meant that we could really extend our distances because uh, in the middle of all, you're very dependent on road houses and they're kind of like 100k from each other, which wasn't enough for us. So thanks to the kilometers <laughs> of cycle, 260k, it didn't matter where we stopped. Right. We'll camp out there, let's just stop yeah. there. And also for the water as well, because he will stop and get supplies of water. <clears> sure, really useful. I know quite a bunch, quite a few people who've done like bike tours and, and things like that, but you guys are the first ones I know who went through Africa. So that, that and Australia for that matter. But yeah, it, it's just such a foreign, a foreign place to me where like in the US, it's like, Okay, Europe is kind of similar, where like each country is similar to like a state in the US, you know, like they're all contiguous and they're all kind of connected and they have their own little different cultures and everything. But in, in Africa, to me, it's just like totally far. So when you first got there, because you went first to South Africa, right? So South Africa, I think, is pretty similar to like a European culture. Um, but like once you started getting into more like the jungle, like what was that experience like? Yeah, South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana, they, they work very closely together. Sure. Tourism and, and cultures are fairly similar, but it, it does change. You leave Cape Town, which is basically what one of the beautiful cities you can be. Right. It's fantastic. And you move on up and you go through, and you do get closer and closer to probably what most of us think of Africa when, when we think of it. And we met a couple coming from Cairo to Cape Town, which is a really, really common route. There's loads of people coming the other way, but no one can hopefully go in our way. Right. And at the border, in, we were in Botswana, we were going towards Zambia next. And they said it gets pretty rough going the opposite way. And we'd already thought it pretty rough getting to where we've been to. So with it, like headwinds or like... With, with headwinds, getting food, oh, getting sure, everything. Sure. Right. Just like finding water. And, and also just road quality as well and right. safety in terms of, not, not people, because we always felt safe in Africa, but more, you know, uh, the traffic. Right. And, and, you know, when you, when you pass the border into... Zambia, it's crazy actually, it changes radically. You, you go from a very flat place to very hilly, and on the side of the road, you keep saying, you keep seeing, you know, trucks on their sides. What is going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> and so, so we saw so many traffic accidents, and yeah. we're like, "Oh gosh, I hope it's not going to be us. I hope it's not going to be us." Uh, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, they're really nice. Like there's no like there's no aggressivity that you can find in Australia or the US. You know, with cyclists, everybody is really nice. But it's nuts. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. chaotic. It's completely. And as you said, the headwind and and particularly the weather as well. We we met these guys at one point and said it gets pretty pretty hairy the way we've come. And also, it's rained every single day for the last three weeks. Right. And for us, it's been dry every day from Cape Town up until this border in, in Botswana. And I, it probably speaks to our lack of preparedness. But we didn't really really realize it was rainy season. Yeah, so <laughs> their summertime is a rainy season, and he goes, like, we, we were stuck in flash floods at, at some points and so on, uh, which was really difficult. It is, it is a better thing, though, for wildlife to be in the rainy season because, well, they're less hungry, less thirsty, right. so and they're more sparse around. Whereas when it's dry season, they, they really are fighting to get to a water point, so if you're in the middle of their way, they're not happy. Yeah, so that was for that part, that was a, a good thing, but yeah, it's just. This, the one thing that's difficult with Africa is that you know you can't drop a pen with on, on Google Map and say, oh, you know, look <laughs> yeah. where it's going to be looking like. So you never know from a day to the other if the route is going to stop or not. So you really have to use local knowledge and ask right. people. There was, for instance, a, 
a road that was a big detour for us, I think it was in, in Kenya, and we had to ask people, it looks like maybe there is a road going that way, under construction, so it's not updated on Google, could you, on Google Earth, could you confirm that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can go, you can go, but then you really have to trust them. You don't know what you're going to find. It's, it's, it's actually going to be fine for bikes, because people don't realize cycling is not the same as driving. Right. So it's, it's a complete unknown, but it wasn't, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, and at the same time, it was much harder. I don't know what to expect. <laughs> like I, you know, you leave and you think, oh, it's going to be difficult, more like in terms of maybe feeling unsafe, or you know, like there's conflict in Africa, you don't know what it's going to be. But actually, it's, this is all absolutely fine. What's, what's more difficult is to maybe, you know, the food that you're going to find, which is the right. same every day, which is not very nutritious, that's difficult. Or the rain, for instance, that's difficult. Or the headwind. Right. Um, it, it's funny when you, when you said, like, the drivers will tell you, oh, like, it's just down the road. Like, I remember on my trip, it was through, uh, you know, like Nebraska, like those really flat states in the U.S. where everyone just drives everywhere and everyone's like, oh yeah, it's all flat. It's like, it's just right down the road, like a couple miles and it's like 50 miles uphill and you're like, I know it seems flat for you in a car, but I'm telling you it's not flat, you know? And you, um, in, in Africa, you get that, so you get a lodge, and they say, oh, no, it's just off the road. <laughs> but they mean seven miles on a sandy road. Right, and right, right, right. When you're 200k into a day, like, this is the <laughs> last thing that, and, and so that takes what you do. But right. like, the way that they talk and, and what's normal for them is totally different to cyclists. And yeah. it's so sandy, and sand is impossible to ride through. Like, I oh, kept falling sure. off. I was like, I'm burying myself <laughs> and falling. Like, oh, um, oh, this is another question. I, I saw on... One of your guys' social media, that there was, it looked like it had to be a drone footage of you guys at Circuit of the Americas. Yeah. Yes. Do you carry a drone with you? Yes. So oh. we had a drone with us all the way to Africa. And then we, basically when we transited to London before going to Africa, we didn't take the drone because we were uh, concerned. Some countries in Africa, they, they, they don't let you take the drone. Oh. So if they find you at the border, they could say, you know, it's a security issue, you can't have a drone. So right. we, just, we just left it. And also we wanted to be a bit lighter. So right. yeah, we had a laptop and a drone like yeah. all the way from the from the top of Canada to South America. Yeah, that's crazy. How did you guys get on the circuit in marriage? Uh, I, I think you're a race fan, right? Massive. Now, do you ever watch NASCAR or is it only Formula One? Bits of NASCAR, bits of Indy, but okay, mainly Formula One. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a I'm a NASCAR fan, but when I saw you guys on the track, I was like, no way! Like, we we went. Uh, some of my friends went down for the uh, for the race. The, the NASCAR, they had like the second annual one, and it was really cool. Like I saw you guys like right past the start finish and everything, and that was really, how, how like how did that come to be? But it wasn't fully legal. <laughs> oh, oh, nice. Well, so we, like a crack in the gate kind of. We but came through. It's actually Austin. very easy to enter a vehicle. The thing with race tracks is on the race weekend you're not getting anywhere near it. Right. right, you need a ticket to even get to park your car. Sure. The rest of the time, not a lot goes on. Nothing. Yeah. And, and I asked Carol, I remember leaving Austin, I said, look, this is a pretty, pretty cool track. If yeah. you can even get close and have a look at it, it would be nice. And they were taking Don off a big concert. So we kind of go around the back and around the side and gates just open and you get to a point where you're literally one barrier away, which is open. Right, right, right. And I said, just, just carry on, just have normal. We get all the way done and we're at the start finish of it, getting the drone out. I'd like to fly it and these guys come, obviously circuit administrators, they see us yeah. on CCTV. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you guys doing? You shouldn't be here. And this is a little white line, we're very bad about saying this. But I said, kind of just like totally normal. 
And I said, no, no, I, I called Cheryl, and she said, it's totally fine, you guys have got 20 minutes, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> For charity, it's fine, like, they, they say, we just feel, and then we'll be gone in, like, just give us 10 minutes. And oh, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we literally drawn out, like, quick, go, 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 on a start, finish straight, take it, let's go. And then you get off, because, you know, they're not, they weren't doing anything, but it's their property, right. you can't mess around, but at sure. the same time... And, and you find it so so often when you go around the world. If you have a, a bit of a smile, a little bit of cheekiness, yeah. as long as you're not actively doing anything that causes difficulty, people don't mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. We, we got away with a lot of stuff. I think he made us much more bold. I think in Europe, and especially with with COVID in the northern hemisphere, we were also obedience okay do that's the rules we need to do that and we live like this the whole right. time cycling around the world we realize very often it's just you can get away with a lot of stuff just be a bit bold go for it and explain yourself like just don't ask go and then apologize yeah. later <laughs> do it with a smile yeah, yeah. Exactly. so when the idea came to cycle the world in your head be honest did it ever did you ever think like oh maybe she'll slow me down or vice versa, like, did you ever think one or the other would drag? Because that was always my problem with, with my trips. Like, I want to go by myself because I don't want any, I don't want to have to, like, wait for anyone or, like, have to get detoured or anything. But I know that's part of the Guinness record, so, like, I didn't know if that was part of it or not. But Before I knew she wanted to get into cycling, absolutely. This kind of, that's my thing. I'm going to own it. I want to do it my own way. Not necessarily to, to, to break a record at the time. But as she came on board, it got to a point where she's a stronger cyclist than I am. Right. Particularly with the injury endurance <laughs> stuff. And the first couple of weeks in Canada, I was dying. I was absolutely <laughs> swinging. Uh, I finished work, I hadn't really trained. I hadn't done anything. And then she was in much better shape. So I never had that fear going into it. And it's, it's very funny that trips I've done before with, with my friend, very often you have inverse feelings. So I feel strong and, and he didn't, and vice versa for, for multiple different events. But for us, I'd say probably 90% of the time you're in tune with, with how you're feeling. I don't know whether it's sleep, whether it's nutrition, whether it's some other kind of emotional connection that, that you get as, as a couple. But it was never a concern when we left. <laughs> no, that is true for me. Uh, it's always funny hearing like yeah, when couple No, start. I think for, for me, so the thing is, David is always going to be more powerful and faster than me as a cyclist. So, you know, if we go for a normal short ride, it will kick my butt. I know I'm way more endurance than he is. So I knew that for this kind of distance, it was kind of going to compensate each other and it was sure. going to be fine. It was quite funny as well. Uh, when we started, I was we, we left, I remember the first day, I look at the, at the speed we were at, we were so speedy and we were kind of like alternating, you know, protecting each other from, from the headwind and... And it ended up actually me being in the front for the whole trip, taking the wind <laughs> and protecting him the whole trip. So now I agree with David though. I think for me, all the way to down to Florida, uh, it was it was a bit difficult because I felt we were not pushing hard enough. I felt we could do more distances every day, and it wasn't it wasn't enough. So I had this frustration when we started that we were not doing enough, but then. I think David was very right. You know, we started a bit slower, which yes, we could have finished maybe faster, but we could that could also have put us completely in the red right away, and then we could have just not be able to finish sure. or injured ourselves and so on. So in many ways, I think his approach was right. I think I was just a little bit stubborn, 
But I agree. I think from South America on more, we just we just got completely into that. If I was really really feeling down, January was feeling it too, and it really helped as well because if it was a tough day and we we were both not feeling it, if we said you want to stop. Generally, the other one was like, oh, please, I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. It's just yeah. that it takes away like, the guilt of being the one that slows you. Right. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think from it, it took a bit of adjustment, and then it worked really fine. I think when you're a family or when you're a couple, because you know each other so well, there's right. always a space where you're going to have to adjust, but then it works. And we had the same when we were in Australia with your dad. Like, maybe the first couple of days, like five, five first days, was so difficult. Like, just working together in this tin can in the evening, like, oh. <laughs> and actually, after that, it was just absolutely wonderful. We had such a good routine put together. Everybody, everybody like had a great time, and it brought us so much closer together. Sure. So yeah, now from that perspective, actually, I think it's been a really good thing. Awesome. It, it is interesting how like it can work to your favor, where like you're saying, you're like if one of you can pick the other one up if you're in a role, but it can also be kind of like magnify the problem too, you know? Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, it's good that you guys are have that have that relationship because I feel like a lot of people that would they would go like ten miles and they're like all right that's, that's it we're done. Um, but uh, another interesting part about the ride, I guess we'll kind of transition into like after the ride. But I also noticed you had a, um, a post once about uh, like the first day back you went for a ride with no weight and you and it would. You used the word, you felt like Bambi, and I thought that was a very, like, in, it, it's a very, like, uh, characteristic feeling, because I don't think people understand, like, the difference of, like, when you have 100 pounds of weight on your bike versus when you, it's just the frame itself. So, like, and maybe explain to people, like, what that feeling is like of being up for 202 days with all this weight and then coming back and having nothing like what is that what is like that feeling like physically like what how do you describe it oh, i think it comes from the fact that when you have so much weight you, you your body works so much into just maintaining balance and then just to go to push your bike forward you have to apply so much power if you want to climb you need to come out of that and really push all of a sudden you come back on a normal bike so first of all our bikes were a bit higher up, so it's more comfortable. So already you're in even more like racing position, and then you push your pedal, and the bike goes so fast. So right. it, everything seems very, very unstable. And if you try to get out of the saddle, you almost feel like you're going to fall off because that, that's what it is. You know, you're so used to putting a lot, a lot of weight and, and, and power in your legs right. to, to do very minimal like distance. All of a sudden, you have all this power, and it's actually very distant, make you lose stability. That's very interesting. I, I climb so well now. <laughs> and, um, my friends are like, oh, I need to get a bit better climber. I was like, just take a very heavy bike and <laughs> yeah, keep yeah. on climbing. And then you go back on your normal bike and you'll be very easy. Yeah. Uh, that's more interesting. But over the, the trip, over the six months, we just bled with it. Every, every country we went through, every time we could send something back, we got super efficient. So by the end of it, the last, the last ride from the South Coast up to London, we really didn't have much at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a really steep pre-up climb. A few guys rode with us the last day. And I, I like bikes, I like riding. But I've never had this feeling of limitless power where you just keep going. And the point where normally you die, you just keep pushing. <laughs> and, and one of my good mates is a rower, is an excellent athlete, who's, whenever we left, he was smashing me on the bike. He was really in good shape. And we just kept going, didn't say anything, kept going, kept going. But to just, I, I imagine getting close to work a professional athlete would be like, you know, just right, 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 right. not in any way that we were, but you kind of get an insight. And 
I look at them on TV and I think, oh, how can they do it? They must be dying. But they're just so fit and so trained. It's a different kind of a fatigue that you right. feel. So it was, it was it's almost like, I guess it's kind of like runner's high, right? In a way, Absolutely. except for yeah. cycling. Yeah. And you can buy can't push any harder than you can. And, yeah. it, and you literally, it's, it's a very weird sensation, which would be lovely to keep, but it's just not, uh, it doesn't fit with a normal lifestyle. Right. So on that note, this is kind of somber, but they say when astronauts go to the moon, their whole life, they're training to go to space. So they, they spend so much energy learning everything and, and being in the, the best peak physical condition. And when they come back, a lot of them get depressed. And you see presidents that have fallen into depressions. So there were uh, other athletes. There, you know, a lot of people need that outlet. That's why you see a lot of people do like speaking tours and, and things like that. When I did my trip, I had grad school to fall back on. I came back to New Jersey and then a week later I moved all my stuff down to Texas and that was like a totally radically different change for me. So it was something to kind of get my mind off of it. Since you guys essentially took a hiatus from your jobs and you're now back at your jobs, what is that 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 down to earth feeling like now that you're back and you're back in the swing of things? Is it does it bother you or is it something that you're like how are you how do you guys cope with that feeling or does it not even exist? Oh no, it, it exists. Um, we're, we're shooting this seven weeks back and we're probably kind of right in the middle of it, trying to figure it out. I, Caroline would explain for her, but I, I knew as soon as we left exactly what you say, but when you come back, think things will be different. You have that natural drop, right? You're high for six, seven months. Right. And I said, Craig, stay in contact with your bosses, stay in contact with family, family and friends. I listened to the UK news just so we had a bit of a handle on what was correct. Which means that you don't perhaps live in the moment of being lost in Bolivia. But I knew that when you come back, it's a massive shift, a completely different shift. And you know, we're talking, we finished work on Thursday, flew on Sunday to start it. We came back on Saturday, we're back at work Tuesday morning, eight o'clock. Right. So there's no there's no <laughs> kind of week to bleed into it or find your feet. It's literally have time to wash your clothes, have a shave, go to work. Right. So because I knew it was gonna happen. I said to Carly, focus on things in the future, let's have a plan. You know, we have a trip to the Alps in July time, so you have something to look at. And a whole bigger difficult thing we're going through is they're renovating our house while we're gone. So we, so we have that as something to look forward to, as <laughs> right, right. to build towards. But even saying that, it's very difficult to come in, to come back to normality. The, the physical aspect or even the emotional aspect of working, it still feels like a holiday because we're cycling 65, 70 hours a week, just cycling. And then you have the travel and, and all of the logistics. So you work probably double what a normal job would be. Right. So normal life's easy, but the emotional aspect, getting back into it, and and perhaps not having a huge big thing like that to look forward to, is definitely tough for me. But you're you're coping with it. Yeah, I think it's harder for me than for David. Um, if I had come back and it was just my work, then I was I would have had enough time, sort of like on the weekend and in the evening to sort of enjoy and digest the trip because I think the, the problem of what I'm feeling right now is that because we came back and I'm right away back into work you know we're not as you say so people that can go on speaking tour and kind of like relive the trip and enjoy thinking and talking about it we haven't had that at all it's just right away back at work and especially for me we have the house renovation to deal with which is really stressful and I'm also setting up a new event in the UK like a, a race 
And so it's, it's all of that together. And I have done that thinking to myself, it's good because it will keep me busy right. and that will be a good thing. But actually, I think I haven't considered that I probably will have, I would need a little bit more time to myself to digest all of it. So it has been really, really difficult. Uh, also, not because we're not at home, we're not, being, not being able to be in a routine and being able to go back on my bike every day. I've been absolutely awful. <laughs> uh, I would not say I'm depressed because I had depression in the past and, and, and you know, uh, I know what it's like, so I would not use the word depressed. But yes, it's, emo- it's, it's emotionally, yeah, it's depressed. It's, it's, an, it's emotionally difficult, but I think because I've coped with this kind of psychological pain in the past and because we have, I do think that we have learned a lot from the trip. That's what we're trying to do. You know, David, I think of the trip and it makes me cry. He looks back at the trip and he's so happy. And David keeps telling me, just be happy. You've done something fantastic. Yeah. So I know, but what is going to come next? Like, well, how am I going to be able to do something remotely as exciting in the future? So I think it's just giving myself a bit of time and ourselves a bit of time and, uh, and just digesting it all rather than, you know, throwing ourselves right away into something else and just, yeah. But... No, it's good. It's, it is difficult, but you know, I'm also very grateful that we just came back alive right. from the trip. So. The last thing I'm saying is, I think for anyone doing it or thinking about it, it, you spend an amazing time. It's natural to feel like it's going to come back. And yeah, you shouldn't yeah. feel bad. You shouldn't think what's wrong with me. Like you need that time, bottom line, and then come back. That's normal. Yeah. That's totally normal. I was talking to a friend who told me when she she did this kind of similar thing, and she said it took me as long to recover from it than it took me to do the trip. I was like, oh gosh, I hope I'm not going to feel down. <laughs> Now, but I think also we need to draw the lessons we have learned from the trip. You know, the, we have shown a lot of resilience. So if we could survive some very difficult situation, there's no reason why we're not going to come out of this stronger. So everything is very transient. You just need sure. to be okay with how you feel and just let it flow, and then everything will get better. Yeah, it's it's really funny. I think when people when you tell. And it's no fault of their own. They've obviously never went through it. But when you tell people who just in general don't take risks, not even psychic, just they're just very like, you know, risk averse people. And you tell them you're doing this trip, the first thing is like, oh no, it's like a joyride. Like it's sunshine and rainbows, you know, like it's that could not be farther from the truth, you know what I mean? And like I always say the the difference between um, an adventure and vacation is adversity, right? So like if if you just want to sit on a beach and sip a margarita, like that's not really a, an adventure. But what what you guys have done is is more than your fair share of adversity, right? So that's it's something where when you come back and, and like you said, like you just need to know that that's how that's the normal flow, and you can't listen too much to what these other people who don't who weren't in your shoes, right? Like they're going to give you advice, and it's like, oh yeah. It, uh, okay, thanks. You know, so that can be annoying sometimes. Did you guys do a like a, jur- a journal? I know you you made like posts, like uh, no. blog posts, but did you keep like a journal or anything? Like yeah. That? So <laughs> when we left, I had a, like a book with me. I thought every night I have time to write. No, no, no. So for me, from Bolivia, I realized I really should be doing that up at the end of the US, and from Bolivia onwards. I basically post it every day, so almost. So my my Instagram is basically my my journal, sure. and it's really good because going back through it, I have all of that. So yeah. that's how I did it. Yeah, Shamefully, I didn't do as much. You did a bit of like a video. Journey. Yeah, I did a video. Nice, but my phones are amazing. You take notes. Yeah. Do you that when we look back at it? I think will be our version yeah. of the journal. Yeah. Yeah. There's all different 
different ways to, to deal with it. But it's uh, it's an absolutely amazing feeling when you're when you're finished. As I'm, I can only imagine you guys breaking Guinness World Records, etched your name in history. So, well, that's all I had. I'm I'm so grateful that you guys took the time to come and talk, and uh, this this was fantastic. So thanks thanks so much, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course, thanks. Thank you.